Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Burn Bad Podcast. I'm Andrea, and I'm joined here by Andrew, as well as Bruce Hoffman and Jacob Ware. So Bruce is a Senior Fellow for Counterterrorism and Homeland Security at the Council on Foreign Relations, and Jacob is a Research Fellow for Domestic and International Terrorism and Counterterrorism, also at the Council on Foreign Relations. Thank you both for, for joining us today. We're very excited to have you on. Well, thank you for having us. We're delighted to be here. Thank you so much. <laughs> Yeah, so I know we're here to discuss in the context of your new book, God's God, Guns, and Sedition, Far-Right Terrorism in America. But I think before diving right in, just wanted to set the stage and, and just talk about why specifically now domestic terrorism is more in the news. I know in the book, you know, one of the thesis statements that you all propose is that this is something not necessarily new. This is something that appeared decades ago. So just wanted to piece out, you know, how did this start back in the 70s where, where you all start sort of, you know, the, the extent of your research and then getting to, to present day? You know, why is this so talked about in the news now? Well, one quick answer to the present day is in 2019, the FBI listed domestic terrorism as one of its six investigative priorities. So clearly, this is in a very big way on the political map of the United States at this at this uh, moment. We started writing the book actually four years ago, um, within weeks of the COVID lockdown. And the reason we did so is it really actually answers your questions is because Jacob and I saw enormous parallels with the late 1970s and early 1980s. In that, uh, the United States had just finished decades-long overseas military expeditions that had not gone as successfully as many would have hoped. And... Uh, the U.S. government was blamed or our political leaders for these failures. Uh, the economy was not in great shape in the late 1970s. I'm old enough to remember 17 and 18 percent inflation, uh, amazingly. Um, the economy was in an uncertain place, let's say, at the beginning of the COVID uh, pandemic. And then what really struck us um, was the xenophobia of both eras, that what really breathed new life into the white supremacist movement or to violent far-right extremism in the United States in the late 70s, early 80s, and in the 20-teens, uh, going into the 2020s, was immigration. I mean, immigration was a huge issue, uh, not just uh, south of the border, but in particular, um, the migration of Vietnamese boat people, for example. And one of the figures that more or less constantly appears through our book is someone named Louis Beam, a Vietnam veteran, was a helicopter door gunner who did two tours in Vietnam, went on to become the Grand Dragon of the Texas Ku Klux Klan, and first made his name organizing protests and cross burnings and then violence against Vietnamese shrimpers and fisher fishermen who were had emigrated to the United States and were coming to places like Galveston and Port Arthur and competing against the fishermen that had been there um, for decades. And it's interesting, two of the most consequential trends that we see in terrorism in the 21st century originated with Lewis Beam in the early 1980s. So this is the other reason we focus on this. And see the 1980s as providing a, a, a jumping off point for an historical trajectory that continues through January 6, 2021. In the early 1980s, um, because of the success of the FBI in cultivating confidential informants within these subversive groups, uh, because of FBI agents who infiltrated them, the groups were being shut down. So Beam hit upon the idea that he called leaderless resistance and now is better known as lone wolf or lone actor uh, terrorism. 
because he argued um, rather than having the traditional hierarchical pyramidal terrorist organization with lines of command and control that could be interdicted, he argued there should be small cells or lone individuals carrying out acts of terrorism, setting these brush fires that he hoped would become a conflagration and overthrow um, the United States government. Also, to frustrate law enforcement penetration or monitoring and surveillance of these groups, he hit upon the idea of moving away from telephones where there were wiretaps and uh, um, the U.S. mail system, actually. And in 1983, 1984, it was quite a novel pioneering idea to seize upon computers, which were a brand new thing. They had 48K memory, which is about a numeral or a letter on a PowerPoint slide today. Uh, so they have very limited memory and storage. Um, and they connected through modems back then about 80 or 160 bob, which meant it was like the old teletypes. You, no images, uh, no pictures or photographs, just text that unfolded very slowly. But of course, the government didn't have computers or hardly had computers anywhere. So this was a very novel uh, means. But then what we see is the book's title. The God is the 1980s because that movement at the time had a very salient uh, religious influence. And apart from Lewis Beam, other leaders, uh, Richard Gernt Butler, Robert Miles, for example, prefaced their names with pastor or reverend. And they ascribed to the Church of Jesus Christ Christian, which was a white supremacist church, right. which still exists today. But by the end of the decade, there was a trial in Fort Smith, Arkansas, where 14 white supremacists were charged with seditious conspiracy, just like the leaders and members of the Oath Keepers and um, Proud Boys were more recently. Very difficult charge to prove. Um, in more recent years, it was dramatically successful. In 1988, it dramatically failed. The 14 white supremacists were acquitted. And in the aftermath of that, the movement really devoted, doubled down on Lewis Beam's leaderless resistance, but also like all terrorist movements, sought to engage a broader constituency, and they reached out to the nascent militia movement. And then you see in the 1990s, the guns part of the title, where concern over the violations of Second Amendment rights, a federal government overreach, the administration of President Bill Clinton uh, was moving with gun control legislation. In fact, there was a 10-year ban on assault weapons that only expired in the mid-2000s. And this animated many people, and they were brought into the movement. You saw the movement evolved from the racism, anti-Semitism, xenophobia of the early 1980s to a very salient anti-government, seditious flavor. And these, these trends converge with the bombing in 1995 of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Office Building in Oklahoma City, where until the 9-11 attacks, that was the most lethal terrorist incident in America. 168 persons were killed. It was perpetrated by Timothy McVeigh, acting on his own with a former army buddy. McVeigh was a U.S. Army veteran. He enlisted two of his army buddies. One of them stayed with him until the end of the plot. But we're not talking about a terrorist organization, two people. And then we move to the 21st century, where the movement basically is stomped on by the FBI after uh, the, the 1995 Murrah building bombing. More or less is dormant. And then 2008, there are two developments. Firstly, the worst economic recession since the Great Depression of the 1930s. And then the candidacy for president of the first credible African-American candidate. In fact, Barack Obama's candidacy is taken so seriously, not only by his supporters in the Democratic Party, but by his detractors who start to shower him with death threats 
that he received Secret Service protection earlier than any other candidate. And then his election just infuses this movement with greater vitality. And then you have the trajectory that really doesn't end on January 6th, 2021, but as we argue in the book, was the culmination point and continues. So I guess a little bit of a follow-up question. Um, you highlighted a little bit the kind of organizational structure of some of these uh, domestic organizations. And I think for a lot of us that are in the national security sphere, a lot of our background, if we are talking about terrorism, has been with international terrorism or things relating to ISIS, Al-Qaeda, um, how similar are those organizations, at least in their structure or how they're communicating, if at all? Well, there's, 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 I think, profound differences. The biggest one is that ISIS has never shed the dominant theological imperative that motivates and, and animates its fighters. Um, also, of course, you know, ISIS for a time actually had a state and, or, uh, you know, it comprised, uh, you know, 260,000, you know, square um miles and ruled over 7 million people. Nothing like that's happened in the U.S. But you're right to draw some of the parallels, uh, especially the leaderless resistance. So the lone wolf became one of the sort of, you know, hallmarks of ISIS. Now, most people assume that originated in the Middle East or in South Asia, perhaps with Salafi jihadi terrorist groups like ISIS. It didn't. That concept, as I just explained, originated in the United States. Similarly, ISIS really change the way terrorist groups operate in terms of its facility in radicalizing and recruiting people through social media. But of course, Louis Beam had, had pioneered that in the 1980s through a more, le well, let's say a less sophisticated form of digital communication. Uh, they're both, I think, um, accelerationists in that they believe in using violence to create chaos, disorder, and bloodshed that then they have the hubris to believe they can fill that um, vacuum. They both are exclusionist. I mean, they're for their own people, their own kith and kin, kin and they see uh, the suppression and even subjugation of everyone else who is not of their particular religion and race as entirely justified. And then I would say they both hearken back to a halcyon era that was uh, homogeneous and that was unaffected by modernity or by societal values that we take uh, for granted, uh, equality, inclusion, uh, legalized abortion, for example. Um, so, you know, there, as very famous figure in the terrorism studies field, Brian Jenkins said, terrorists are more imitative than, than innovative. And we find that terrorist groups do imitate one another and borrow from one another tactics that they find useful. And that's really the closest parallel. And then, you know, beyond that, it, it, there really aren't many similarities. I, I mean, I think that one of the most important and revealing findings that Bruce and I, uh, that Bruce and I can pull out of our book is this concept of lone act of violence at a tactical level, uh, and and why and how it's effective. And I think that's one area where you really see strong similarities with a group like the Islamic State and a, and, and far-right violence today. It's really important to recognize that the acts of violence that we saw in the United States, for example, that what ISIS inspired were uh, homegrown. They involved individuals training, really radicalizing and training on their own and conducting those acts on their own. Uh, that's a difference from, from some of those earlier generations, whether you're looking at Al-Qaeda, for example, you're looking at some of the far-right groups here in the United States. 
I think terrorist organizations and terrorist networks in the 21st century have realized that there's a very effective way of inspiring acts of violence that involves radicalizing people through social media, encouraging them to have the agency and authority to conduct operations how and when they deem best. And that, of course, has led to horrendous violence at places like Orlando and San Bernardino and El Paso and Pittsburgh and Buffalo. Now, the death tolls there are far lower, obviously, than those coordinated plots like 9-11. And that's, that's an important factor here. But I think the thing that makes the resistance so effective and also frightening from a counterterrorism standpoint is the inevitability, especially in a country where, as Bruce and I write in our book, in a country where you have so many firearms, counterterrorism analysts look at threats as a nexus between intent and capability. And in a leaderless era, leaderless resistance era or a lone act of violence era, when you have so much capability, you really just need some intent somewhere and you will have violence. And I think that is really, really challenging uh, from a counterterrorism standpoint. Yeah, I wanted to kind of dive into accelerationism. So this was a new term for me as I was reading through the book, you know, first chapter introduced. I love being presented with new theories and thinking about how, you know, for example, just how you posit, you know, this is the, a term first found in Marx and Engels' Manifesto of the Communist Party. I did not know that. I thought that was crazy that, you know, far right groups here are using something that, you know, you would think they would be so vehemently opposed to uh, a, a communist theory. Can you describe the context in which this first appears in, in that book? And, you know, how exactly are these groups, if it's either just far right extremist groups, or are we talking also, you know, can this be applied to uh, Islamic foreign terrorist organizations as well? How is this used mm. to motivate either these lone wolf terrorists, these organizations, or, or just like essentially create the ideology that they operate under. Even to this day, I mean, acceleration is, is embraced by violent far left extremists as well as violent far right ex extremists, because it's such a compelling theory. And you're right to say that it dates back to the mid 19th century and to, to Marx and Engels' seminal work. I mean, basically, they argued that industrialization and, capital and capitalism was replicating itself and unfolding at such a rapid pace that it was causing profound societal dysfunctionality and upheaval. And they believed that that constant interplay would eventually get to a point that it would create chaos and disorder and therefore produce the violence that was ripe to staging a revolution, in essence, to end it. So... This was revitalized, curiously enough, um, in the 1990s by someone who's who lives actually in Denver, um, who I think was last employed as a janitor. Um, so we're not talking about you know a, a distinguished ideologue, but someone named James Mason, who actually is prescribed in Canada. He's designated as a terrorist by the Canadian government, although he's a he's not a very visible figure in the field. But in the 1990s, he wrote a newspaper called Siege that argued very much for an accelerationist um, approach to carrying out this revolution, to overthrowing you know, uh, the United States government. I mean, 
Mason was someone who venerated both Adolf Hitler and Charles Manson. Charles Manson being, you know, the terrible killings that occurred in Los Angeles in 1969, kind of the the plot point to uh, the Quentin Tarantino film uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, and various groups, uh, the the Fuhrer Krieg, uh, the Krieg movement, for instance, Sonnenkrieg. There were various terrorists. Far, violent far-right terrorist groups that have used that name have taken on board the accelerationist ideology. But it reflects, you know, the two extremes of the political system that agree that this that in, in an odd way that the system is so rotten and so corrupt and that they have absolutely no trust in elected officials and that the only solution is to hasten the collapse of the existing system both the economic system of capitalism but the political system of democracy so that it can be swept aside and replaced with a different order that they believe will be much much better but of course it'd be much better because it privileges their particular um racial uh, religious and ethnic views so I think you highlighted this a little bit already, but just wanted to hone in on it. How are a lot of these ideas shared between uh, different different groups and kind of this, at least in the domestic arena, and then potentially even shared internationally? How are those usually kind of moved around? Lots of ways. Uh, there is a dynamic landscape of communications technologies that these individuals used, the networks used to communicate with each other. Uh, these days, Social media is really the front line, the battlefield of radicalization. Um, we see groups weaponizing a range of platforms, often at the same time, uh, to spread their views. That radicalization occurs uh, both on a broader level, so on, on platforms like Facebook, right, where you can reach a lot more people, but uh, you can't go as in-depth on your radical ideologies because of content moderation platforms. But radicalization also occurs at a much deeper level in some less moderated platforms, places like Discord, Telegram, 8chan, Reddit, where individuals can not just reach broader constituencies, but can actually create echo chambers and can create explicitly radical or extremist um, networks. Now, social media also provides a forum for these groups, these networks to... Uh, discuss and reflect on key texts, right? So Bruce mentioned James Mason's Siege, which is now common reading for accelerationist neo-Nazis, let's say. Documents like Mein Kampf, of course, and Turner Diaries, the, the old book from 1978, which provides a blueprint for revolution. And also modern manifestos. Um, so a lot of the acts of violence that we've seen over the past decade, whether it Charleston, South Carolina, or uh, Christchurch, New Zealand, or El Paso, Texas, or Buffalo, New York, or even going further back to Oslo in 2011. A lot of those far-right, all of those far-right attacks have involved detailed manifestos, which are both ideological documents, so they they you know, advance the ideologies, but they're also tactical models to do uh, manuals for how the, the next terrorists can it can also conduct a similar attack. So we see this very dynamic kind of landscape of communications where they're they're both, you know, using and reusing old documents and also advancing new new ideological threads. As Bruce mentioned earlier, the far right has always been on the cutting edge of communications technology. And I think as we stand here on a on the precipice of a new era of technology, right? AI, generative AI, deep fakes, we do need to be thinking about how 
the violent far right will be using those technologies to advance, to propel radicalization and recruitment, um, because I'm sure they are already thinking of, of how they're going to do that. I think it's interesting. You know, I love how you mentioned that and throughout the book as well, there are different manifestos and kind of written literature that inspires some of these people. I, you know, trying to think of how to word this question to not make it as confusing. Does each lone wolf terrorist kind of have, or at least foment their own ideology prior to, you know, being motivated to conduct a a large attack, for example, or commit acts of violence? Or is it, are the ideologies kind of inherently, you know, replicating essentially what is coming to them through these written works and, and other, you know, forms of, of kind of resources that they use? I think it's both. So one of the developments that we write about is something called ideological convergence. And this is a trend that, that Bruce and I have kind of watched over the past, you know, four or five years. The FBI calls it salad bar ideology. Uh, other scholars call it things like fringe fluidity. It's basically this concept, and I think it I think it relates to both lone act of violence and social media, but it's basically this concept that individual extremists can take bits and pieces from various ideologies um, and kind of stitch together their own extremist ideology that might appeal, for example, more to their own personal grievances. So one case where this was really very uh, present was the Christchurch shooting, where this individual defined himself as an eco-fascist, which means he's a fascist, right? But he also had concerns about the environment, the degradation of the environment. So he basically believed that in order to combat you know, the degradation of the environment, he needed to kill immigrants to limit, to limit overpopulation to allow, I guess, ethnic New Zealanders, you know, to, or, or uh, you know, in his case, racially, you know, pure people to, to, to continue to live on that land. That's how he saw his ideology. Another case that we don't write about in the book and that is a real headache um, is this horrendous incident that occurred, I think, last year in Allen, Texas, with an individual who murdered several people at a, at a shopping uh, mall without it being clear whether they were targeted for any kind of political reason. But he was clearly, you know, based on the not manifesto, but kind of diary that he left behind on a Russian social media account, he was a neo-Nazi. He was an incel, involuntary celibate, which is basically a, a group of men who believe that they've been excluded from some kind of sexual marketplace. There seemed to be some satanic elements. This was clearly somebody who had profound personal factors involved in his radicalization, whether that's mental health or or something else, and was just kind of picking up pieces of ideology to justify his own worldview that eventually propelled him to violence, even though there was no necessarily, not necessarily an ideological target to it. So we are seeing that play a bigger role still within the umbrella of these broader white supremacist and anti-government ideologies, which have been gathering pace as we write in the book since the 1970s at least, but, you know, really uh, all the way back to the Civil War and perhaps even back to the founding of this nation. And so how has that changed some of the recruitment strategies then? It's made it more diverse, chaotic, diffuse. Um, Again, the leaderless resistance model does not involve necessarily um, ideologues or recruiters or leaders who are developing ideologies 
and developing networks and directing attacks, right? They are creating this, what the far right is today, I think, is this chaotic, messy space made up of multiple social media platforms, multiple ideologies that all kind of um, fuse and dance around each other. And people are walking through that space, picking up bits and pieces and developing their own worldviews, their own frameworks, and sometimes breaking off um, in, in, in violence. The way that it becomes really difficult, Andrew, is in terrorist targeting. So I'll, I'll point out um, just recently, there was a really horrible and bizarre case of far-right violence involving an individual in the suburbs of Philadelphia who beheaded his father and posted it on YouTube, along with a 14-minute rant about how he was, you know, acceleration, you know, he was calling for further acts of violence, saying there was no political solution, saying that the federal government is corrupt, um, also saying that he wanted to run for president and that, you know, he wouldn't, he was basically calling himself the Messiah. Um, so somebody clearly who just had developed this very complex ideology that eventually resulted in him killing his own father because he worked for the federal government. So it becomes really challenging from a targeting standpoint because when people are kind of developing their own worldviews and not something that's necessarily established and predictable, you don't know where they are going to divert or direct their um, their anger. If I could jump in for a minute, because Andrew, you ask a really important question that underscores the historical trajectory of the book that we emphasize, is that when this movement reemerged in the 1980s, it was evolving from what had been a racist, anti-Semitic, xenophobic movement into something bigger and larger. And the idea at the time was deliberately, just as Jacob has described, to turn it into this big tent, uh, to unite very disparate individual ideological threads into this very strident anti-government seditious movement. So from the 1980s till today, you have exactly the salad bowl mix of um, racist, anti-Semites, xenophobes, um, people opposing LGBTQ communities and legislations, militant opponents of legalized abortion, zealous exponents of the Second Second Amendment, um, persons who believe that there that there is no legitimate governance in the United States above the local or county level, and that therefore. The local sheriff is the only official that one has to pay attention to. This has led into the sovereign citizens movement that has targeted law enforcement, for example. Militant tax resistors are blended into this. So it becomes, you know, this, um, in one sense, a conveyor belt where they deliberately try to hook people on one issue and then pull them along on this conveyor belt to embrace and understand this variety of issues where the end point is sedition, overthrowing the democratically elected government of the United States and replacing it with an authoritarian one. I mean, that becomes, the end point becomes the commonality, but the threads that are woven together in this tapestry to get there are much more uh, disparate and diffuse. 
I love the conversation about the tapestry. I'm just, there was one paragraph or just really one reference in your book that talked about Ethan Meltzer. Um, and that kind of piqued my curiosity a little bit because I was like, how can someone, I don't know, how can you combine <laughs> what he combined, which is essentially, as you mentioned, national socialism and Salafist jihadism. I did, you know, it's hard to kind of see, <laughs> I mean, obviously there are parallels ideolog ideologically, you know, in terms of just how fervent these, these beliefs are, but it, it's hard, you know, thinking in terms of this conveyor belt and, and imagining people just picking up little pieces as they go. Um, so that was something that was really interesting for me, but back to questions. I was really interested in kind of the targeting. So you mentioned, Jacob, that it's a little difficult to target these domestic terrorists. Can we, how would we compare targeting, you know, international terrorism versus domestic terror, with terrorists here? Well, listen, the United States government is actually, in my opinion, I'd, I'd be curious if Bruce agrees with me or not here, but the United States government is very good at international counterterrorism in terms of targeting the groups that were, were um, trying to attack us, right? 9-11 occurred in 2001, and it took another 18 years for a foreign terrorist organization to successfully coordinate a plot in the United States. That happened in Pensacola, Florida in 2019. We developed this suite of very high-tech, very impressive uh, international counterterrorism measures to target these groups. I don't know, Andrea, if you've heard of the Ninja Missile the R9X missile, but if not, that's one example of, of just how high-tech our international counterterrorism arsenal is these days. And the list of international terrorists who have been successfully targeted in, in drone strikes, for example, is incredibly extensive. None of those tools matter in the domestic space, right? For very good reasons, we're not using drone strikes on American citizens. Um, so the United States government, I think, has been behind the ball a little bit in trying to develop a new a new um a new suite of measures that needs to include things like countering violent extremism programming right to uh, to get into communities and try to to divert people away from radical ideologies uh but one way that's even even more straightforward that we find there's a key difference is in the legislation that that prosecutors and the government have to use against terrorists so when you're dealing with an international terrorist or a, or a homegrown violent extremist from the U.S., um, the U.S. government will typically use a statute or charge called material support to a foreign terrorist organization. This basically means you are providing support to a, to a group that's designated as an FTO right, by the State Department. So Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, Hamas, Hezbollah are all designated FTOs. Material support can include yourself, it can include, so traveling, it can include violence, propaganda, uh, money. Um, so it's a range of things. It's a very malleable charge. Looking at the ISIS cases, looking at the ISIS FTO cases, the average sentence for an FTO case for an ISIS adherent was 13.5 years uh, jail sentence. Those charges don't exist in the domestic landscape. We don't have a domestic terrorism charge. And so often with somebody that the government believes is planning a plot, um, 
you know, planning to conduct an attack, they have to basically use any measures that they have to get them off the street. And that often involves things like owning a firearm while being a drug user. Um, and these sentences do not involve, these charges do not involve sentences up to 13.5 years. They're typically, sometimes they're a year, sometimes they're three years and they might get a terrorism enhancement on top of that. Um, so that's just one way in which, you know, Bruce and I, in our recommendations section, we try to narrow that that gap. Um, you know, we advocate for domestic terrorism legislation that would both lead to better sentencing equity uh, that hopefully would push back against recidivism, but also kind of push back against the optical issue, the optics issue of having, you know, the the terrorists who are conducting attacks on behalf of a different religion and often come from a different race. Uh, those are prosecutors, terrorists, but the white supremacists who, who conduct basically identical attacks are not, uh, not, sentenced as terrorists so we so we try to correct that by by advocating for domestic terrorism law that's just one example of, of how how uh, this this manifests itself differently i also want to jump a little bit over into some of the tactic side so i uh, was curious to hear maybe some of the uh, tactics that you've outlined that uh, some the domestic terrorists use and then perhaps jumping into why they're particularly effective or honestly ineffective as well well it's 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 interesting that uh, this book that Jacob referred to earlier, the Turner Diaries, which was published in 1978, um, it was written by a famous white supremacist, head of one of the American Nazi parties. It was called the National Alliance. His name was William Luther Pierce. Um, he actually had a PhD in physics, had attended Caltech for a while, so someone uh, was quite intelligent. And he understood very clearly that the sort of turgid prose and didactic style of, you know, basically constantly recapitulating Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf would only reach a limited leadership or only have uh, a very modest resonance. So he had on the idea of writing a novel and a dystopian novel that basically lays out um, how the United States government is overthrown. And as life sometimes imitates art. Uh, in the book or the novel, the main terrorist group is called the Order. There was an actual order that existed in the mid-1980s that attempted to implement this battle plan or this blueprint. Timothy McVeigh was so enamored of the Turner Diaries that um, when he was a soldier at Fort Riley, Kansas, in his uh, off hours, um, he, you know, is his downtime. He actually sold the book at gun shows to earn pocket money. Um, he actually, in the bombing of the Murrah building, one of the climactic scenes in the Turner Diaries is uh, the protagonist, Earl Turner, drives a truck bomb beneath the FBI headquarters uh, on Pennsylvania Avenue, where there's an underground parking garage and blows it up. Um, McVeigh fastened on the Murrah building because he believed that was the federal office building from which the siege at Waco, the compound of the Branch Davidians in 1993 that killed uh, um, you know, over 75 people, including many children, that that had been directed from the Murrah building. That wasn't true, but never mind. But he selected the Murrah building. It didn't have an underground parking garage. So instead, in his surveillance, he noticed there was a an indented loading dock. In essence, basically the curb, you could get within 11 feet of the building and a truck bomb would take it down. 
So that was taken right from the Turner Diaries. And in fact, when he was arrested by an Oklahoma state trooper, shortly afterwards, there was a folder on the passenger seat next to him in his car. And in it were pages of the Turner Diaries that he had cut out and had underlined and highlighted because they were so meaningful to him. So sort of bo mass bombing was because of the, the, um, the centrality of Oklahoma City to this movement. And then, of course, don't forget um, the following year, outside of the Atlanta Olympics at Centennial Park, Eric Rudolph, uh, another veteran of, of the U.S. Army, actually carried out a bombing, um, which tragically killed two people, then went on to bomb uh, abortion clinics in the South and also uh, a gay nightclub. Um, so bombing was kind of the preferred tactic. What we've seen, though, in the 21st century is the rise of mass shooting. I mean, not just politically motivated mass shootings, uh, whether at uh, at um, you know the Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston or um, the Tree of Life Synagogue or the Walmart in El Paso or the Topps Grocery Store in Buffalo, um, but also was, you know mass shootings at schools, of course, have become commonplace. And this is a reflection of just the availability of firearms in the United States and also of high-velocity assault weapons that suit the terrorist purposes very well. In other words, the learning curve to carry out a terrorist operation um, is not nearly as long and complicated. I mean, McVeigh spent months perfecting this mixture of ammonium nitrate, which is fertilizer with racing fuel to create this very powerful explosive device that he had trial runs in the desert to ensure that it would, it would work. Well, the problem that we've seen in the United States, of course, for decades, uh, certainly going back to Columbine um, in the 1990s, is that all you have to do is pick up a gun and aim it at defenseless public gatherings of people, whether it's schools or whether it concerts. So what we've seen is an evolution now where um, you know firearms have become much more prevalent. But you know, it's not an either or. One may predominate as a tactic for a time, but it's not to say that if you really want to have this seismic, dramatic impact, that there isn't a lone individual out there who's also adopting the Turner Diaries as a blueprint and also emulating uh, Timothy McVeigh, let's say, as opposed to Robert Bowers, the shooter at the uh, Tree of Life synagogue attack um, in, in, in Pittsburgh these changes in the 21st century, what would you say the risk of increasing sectarian violence in the United States is? I think my biggest worry, and, and Jacob um, you know, has thoughts on this as, as, as well. One of the great things about writing a book when you're 41 years apart is that you learn from one another. And also sometimes you don't always agree. And sometimes you do agree. And it's interesting how we find, found common ground, especially with our policy recommendations. I mean, I think Jacob may have a different profound fear than I do. My profound fear is that in the aftermath of this successful prosecution of insurrectionists on January 6th and the conviction of almost two dozen Proud Boys and Oath Keepers on seditious conspiracy, is that in the future, we're not going to see people you know, wearing all sorts of regalia that have the name of the group that they belong to. They're not going to openly use social media to boast of their convergence on historical landmarks to engage in um, insurrection and, and rioting. Rather, they're going to burrow deeper underground. And as they burrow deeper underground, it becomes much more difficult for law enforcement and the authorities to discern their plots, to interdict an attack. Um, they 
they follow Lewis Beam's example of leaderless resistance and communicate amongst one another in small cells. Now, it's not impossible to identify and dismantle these cells. Of course, it was just such a cell that came together on Facebook and in um, 2020 plotted to um, uh, uh, kidnap and, and hold in a you know a trial in a kangaroo court of Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. But what worries me, it's the ones that the authorities will miss where they're not able to develop a confidential informant and where the trouble is historically as terrorists burrow deeper underground, this group think ta- this group thing takes hold, which only eggs one another on to engage in even more egregious acts of violence. So to me, I don't think, and we talk about this in the book, scholars and journalists have written about the fears of civil war we're a bit more dubious that there will actually be a civil war, at least we hope not. Although at the same time, you know, repeatedly polls conducted by the University of Maryland and the Washington Post find that upwards of a third or more of Americans believe that in certain circumstances, violence can be justified against the federal government. Uh, This is the highest percentage ever that adheres to that belief. It's astonishing to me that in a democracy where we go to the polls and elect leaders to implement political change that we don't resort to violence. There's there's not a need for that. That violence has become uh, so acceptable. So that to me is a very profound worry that we could descend into um, a situation where there's, let's say, acts of terrorism become more commonplace than they are today. And let's face it, you know, in 1970 and 1971, there was an 18 month period when there were 2,500 bombings across the United States, almost exclusively perpetrated by violent far left extremists and by ethno-nationalist separatist groups. You know, 2,500 bombings is, is multiple numbers per day. The reason we don't remember that is that most of them were non-lethal. The majority, not all of them, did not kill persons. That's a big difference with terrorists today is that they, like Timothy McVeigh said, the FBI, when they interrogated him, said, couldn't you have blown up the Murrah building in the middle of the night to make your point that you were, you know, that you're animus towards the federal government? And McVeigh said, no, we needed a body count to attract attention to ourselves and our cause. And that's what worries me is that terrorism in the 21st century has just become much more lethal to exactly make that point. And also, if you've got a third of people saying it's justified to use violence against the federal government, they're also saying it's justified to use violence against their fellow Americans, which is a very scary thing. I know. I was interested in kind of the references that you all made about the troubles. I know a little bit about the history of political violence in Italy that I studied a bit in college. So, you know, it's interesting to see how potentially the situation can devolve where you have violent actors on both sides just going at it. (laughs) One third of Americans believe in political violence. Amazing. (laughs) Well, Andrea, you know, the Red Brigades, even at its height in Italy in the 1970s, never really had more than 500 trigger pullers or bomb throws. And that was actually a large group for that era. Our colleague at American University, Cynthia Miller Idris, in her book, Hate in the Homeland, estimates that there's there's potentially as many as 75,000 armed and violently inclined far-right extremists in the United States. I mean, that's an order of magnitude much greater than even in the terrible years of lead in Italy, which also featured kidnapping and assassination or kidnapping and execution of political leaders, uh, the former prime minister, Aldo Moro, in 1978. 
I mean, that's, I think, what makes it so scary in the United States is that the numbers could be far larger than most traditional terrorist groups. And let's face it, um, this is a well-armed country. In 2020 alone, 17 million firearms were purchased. Yeah, yeah. I want to just switch a little bit over to mitigation strategies, kind of just to, to wrap with us up here on a, on a good note. Um, so your last chapter here references short-term, medium-term, long-term strategies to, to kind of suppress, I, I suppose, or at least mitigate domestic terrorism. Um, I was interested in, in the solutions that you both had for medium-term and long-term measures. So strengthen civil society, build national unity. Sounds like very... Uh, you know, complicated <laughs> things to do, building national unity and strengthening civil society. So can we talk a little bit about how the implementation side of your policy recommendations work? Because I think implementation is one of the hardest things, <laughs> you know, in policymaking <laughs> that that you can do. Well, Andrea, you're actually hitting on exactly one of the saddest moments, I think, in in, in writing this book, which was it went through multiple levels of peer review, including internally in our organization and the way that the conclusion was initially originally written we actually started off with the national unity part so we actually said uh you know everything comes from everything will be better if we just kind of come to some level of rebuilding trust in each other in our neighbors in the system in voting in the press uh, and most of the reviewers that we had all told us um Great. What a great idea. You also know that's not going to happen. So you can't lead off with that. So we basically had to kind of accept that that's the long term, right? That's the that's the end point that we're trying to get to. Um, if we are making an argument in the book that, that this form of terrorism has been growing for 40 years, right? If not, it's from the Reconstruction era with the emergence of the first Ku Klux Klan. We also kind of have to make the argument that these mitigation strategies also have to be long-term, right? We also have to be thinking 40, 50, 60 years down the line. So I think that's the national unity is a, the national unity is a sadly a long-term, you know, measure that, that we'll, that we'll have to fight for as a, as a country, the medium term things that, you know, I think a couple of the ones that, that are interesting to us, um, medium term being things that you implement now, but that would have impacts in five to 10 years, one of those is countering violent extremism programming. So our research revealed that personal factors were playing a larger role these days in the movement, although they've kind of always been around. Lewis Beam, who Bruce spoke about, we quote him in the book talking about his post-traumatic stress disorder from service in Vietnam. So countering violent extremism would involve things like uh, mental health programming, um, anti-bullying initiatives, to try to just build greater resilience for, for people who might be vulnerable to radicalization. Uh, but the other thing that I, that we talk about, which um, a lot of people in our field right now are, are thinking about, and actually that it was mentioned in the Biden administration's national strategy to counter terrorism, uh, domestic terrorism back in June, 2021 is digital literacy or media literacy, which is the concept of basically training or educating people at various levels. So from elementary school all the way up to, you know, senior citizens in healthy, safe, productive, responsible behavior online. 
One example of this would be lateral reading. So if you read a source, if you read an article which is kind of unbelievable, right, it might actually be unbelievable and you should go to another source uh, from a different ideological angle and read that to verify if it's true. Um, so that'd be one example. Being able to delineate opinion pieces from analysis pieces um, is another example. And the reason why I think this would be particularly beneficial at this moment for our nation is this is not just counter-extremism, right? A, a populace which is poorly prepared for an online world is going to be poorly prepared for an era of strategic and great power competition when adversaries are seeking to divide uh, divide the nation through propaganda, right? We saw that in 2016, and we're going to see that accelerate further in an AI and deepfake era. So, for example, training the American people on how to spot deepfakes would be tremendously beneficial for counter-extremism, um, and that's that medium-term uh, civil society strengthening kind of, of measure. One final brief question to both of you. Um, Jacob, I think you hit on, just we're hitting on this a little bit more, but for just kind of to, to summarize, at least for us, our listeners, or for um, really the American public in general, what's something that we should be looking out for in the in the near future? What should be, what should be front of mind on the subject? The 2024 election. One thing we did not talk much about is this movement has an intimate relationship with national politics and election seasons are always causes for heightened violence. Um, and we should be quite concerned about violence in 2024, in part because of political rhetoric, right? Uh, politicians have warned for, about bedlam in the country if certain uh, incidents occur. Um, there is also going to be a lot of focus on the immigration issue in this election, and certain political leaders and media figures are framing this as an invasion as Americans needing to defend themselves, um, that is highly irresponsible language that that quite possibly could lead to violence. Um, this is going to be a fraught election year, I believe. And in a year in which there's actually, I think, 50 or 60 elections around the world, and America should be the exemplar of, of democracy mm. and safe and fair elections, um, I fear that that's not going to be the case. And so this is a year where this issue could could really come to the fore. Uh, could I please ask Bruce to end with a more optimistic note? Thank you. <laughs> Gosh, I was just thinking how much I agreed with you, Jacob. Um, well, I'll try to think of an optimistic note to end on. But what I would add to that is what concerns me the most going forward is one way or the other, the 2024 presidential election is not going to resolve this issue, whoever wins. Uh, the divisiveness and the polarization of the United States. I think what worries me the most, and Jacob alluded to this, and the biggest difference from the 1980s, which is in fact when I first started studying the phenomena of terrorism, well, of violent far-right extremism in the United States and elsewhere, really dates back to, to 1981 when I first wrote about it. Um, back then, the sentiments and the ideology um, was much more isolated and very disconnected. There were people that harbored these profound racist, anti-Semitic, xenophobic, uh, anti-federalist, seditious views, but they were few and far between and they weren't very well connected. 
The biggest difference with the 21st century and today is that what was once shunned, completely shunned and ignored by mainstream political leaders and figures has now uh, become part of the political discourse and vernacular. Um, it's provided top cover to this kind of extremism. And unfortunately, the top cover, you know, unlocks a very powerful force that's very difficult to control and predict how it will uh, manifest itself and unfold. And that's what worries me going into the future is that um, any violent incident can set off something much more profound and much more um, worrisome. Uh, to end on an optimistic note. Um, Bruce, I've got one. I've got okay, one. Go on. Right. <laughs> you, you rescued but, me. Yeah, I'll tell it. I'll tell a quick story that that I that I love and I, I tell it frequently. Actually, um, I think it was June 2020. It was mid middle of COVID. President Trump announced that he was going to hold a reopen America rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and uh, everybody was excited for it. And the tickets were sold out. And President Trump shows up in Tulsa, and the arena's half full because a whole bunch of TikTok fans, uh, a K-pop fans on TikTok bought all the tickets and then didn't show up as basically a prank. Now, whatever your personal political views are, I think the real conclusion from that story is that young people have an awesome power to drive change, mobilize at the grassroots level, um, even if it's, you know, for humor purposes. If we can figure out how to harness that power for good, we will be okay. Now, the question, Andrea and Andrew, because you are young people, unlike me and Bruce, is how do you do that? Um, so, uh, the torch is passed to you to to figure out how to how to build that that better and brighter world for us all. It's a big responsibility that that we just got presented with, but we'll 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 do it. We'll do it. I think good. Good. generation inspires change. But that was a good end to, to an op or well, not necessarily an optimistic conversation, but a good, a good, nice ending. Thanks very much, Andrea and, and Andrew. It really was a pleasure speaking with you both. Yeah, thank you so much. Your excellent questions. Thank you. <laughs>